be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and prophets. See, being generous is actually a question of um, loving your neighbor, really. Um, we're going into uh, chapter 5, so starting at verse 32, that's on page 1096 in the proper hardback Bibles. If you've got a slightly floppy hardback Bible, the page is 771. Um, so that is Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from, the time to, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he needed. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, from which son of encouragement, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back half of the money for himself but bought the rest and put it at the, at the apostles' feet. Then Jesus said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all that who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the, the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Thanks, Hamish. You know when you think you have a great idea at the time and then present me is thinking, oh, past me, why did you put Tom, me on to preach, me, Tom, on to preach tonight? You should have asked Hamish to preach this passage. That made far more sense. Um, two stories we're looking at today. Uh, and the first one in Acts 4 
it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's so heartwarming. All the believers are one in heart and mind. Radical generosity, not considering their possessions. There are no needy people among the community. Um, if the passage just ended there, wouldn't this be a lovely sermon? Um, and then the second story is brutal. Um, and it's hard to hear. Uh, it's, hard to, it's awkward to preach on. Um, and every time the scriptures throw us a curveball like this, we read a passage and we think, what, why is that in there? What, what is that about? Um, we have an opportunity because we're, we're reminded that God doesn't fit in our box. And often it would be a lot nicer, I think, if we, we often think if God just fitted in our box and thought exactly what we do and did exactly what we thought he should do. But if he did that, he probably wouldn't be God, would he? Because he's a bit bigger than us. And, and today's one of those passages where God just doesn't seem to fit in our box and doesn't seem to act like we might think he ought to have acted. And so we come to a story like Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, and we find our world reoriented. Uh, and we find that we have to encounter God on his terms, not ours, because he's God, for better or for worse, and we are not. Um, and while both stories tonight involve selling stuff, they're not really stories about money, they're, but they're stories about our hearts. Um, they, these are stories about belonging, about community. Uh, they're stories about holiness, about sin and judgment, uh, about the gospel itself. Uh, and they're both windows into the kind of community that God wants us to be. So we're going to dive into each in turn, first the story in chapter 4, then the story in chapter 5. And let's hold them up as a mirror to our church community. Uh, and ask what it is that the Lord might want, us to, want to teach us through these two stories. Um, so first, this wonderful one in ch chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. And there were no needy people among them. It's an amazing picture. Can you imagine? Not a single person in need in the whole community, and there were thousands of them in Jerusalem at this time. For a moment in time, they actually did make poverty history. We tried it a few years ago, and we, it was a great campaign, but there's still so much poverty in the world. Here, for a moment, they actually did it. And it's the dream that communism and socialism have been chasing uh, in the political arena, but never actually managed to achieve every country that's experimented with communism. It starts with great hopes, but then it ends badly. Um, and the reason is because laws and policies alone can't change the human heart. And the problems of greed and poverty, they come back to our selfishness, us who in the West have so much money. Um, it's the selfishness of the human heart that causes poverty, not laws and policies able to fix it. Uh, and, but this story in Acts, it shows us how it is possible for life to be marked by this overflowing generosity, this togetherness, not by human effort, but by being transformed by the Spirit of God. Because see what had just happened, it's what we looked at last week in verse 31. All the believers had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And then this is the result. And so the passage that we're looking at today, it's a description of the difference that knowing Jesus makes in a community. Because if we're filled with the Spirit, we will overflow in love for others. Because they were filled with the Spirit in verse 31, they were one in heart and mind in verse 32. And they're living out in, t in practice the teaching of the whole of the New Testament. Uh, so in Ephesians 4, Paul writes to the church and he says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, over all and through all and in all. Uh, he says the same similar thing in Philippians 2. He writes to the believers in Philippi, if you have any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then have the same mind, being one in spirit and purpose. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity. He makes us one church. And so because we all belong to Jesus, that means that we also belong to each other. We are adopted together as, the children, as children of the same Heavenly Father. And so we, for better or for worse, are brothers and sisters. We've been made family by him. Uh, we've all received the same Holy Spirit, so we're united by that Holy Spirit. We are one in him. Uh, and Ephesians and Philippians, they tell us that we've received this unity. We are one in Jesus. And so they urge us to act like it. And that's what happens here in Acts chapter 4. They've been made one in Jesus. They receive God's love, and it overflows from us. Uh, we're commanded to be one, but here in Acts chapter 4, it actually happens. And it wasn't because they were particularly loving people, it wasn't because they were particularly great, but it was because they were walking with a particularly loving God, and his love changed their hearts and did something unique in history. And the good news is that our behaviour as Christians, our life as a community together, it's to be rooted in our identity, in who we are. Uh, the moral logic of the New Testament, it's always the same. You could sum up how we behave as Christians in four words. I think it's four. Be who you are. Four words. That's what it means to be a Christian. We already have the unity of the Spirit. We are already the family of God. We are already one in Him. So let's be who we are. Let's act like it. Uh, I say this to my kids all the time. They're four and two. They're brother and sister. They can't help, they can't help it. They haven't chosen to be a brother or sister, so they might as well get on. And I tell them not to fight over the same toy. But you can choose, can't you, if you're going to love your siblings the way that it would be good to since you are siblings, or whether you're going to fight and, and quarrel. Already in him we are one. So we put each other first. We're one in heart and mind. We live it out in practice. We act from our identity, who we already are. And this is the kind of community we want to be, isn't it? Inhabiting our identity, coming to Jesus, made one by him and overflowing with his love to everyone around us. And in Acts chapter 4, because they were one in Jesus, as a result in verse 32, we read that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? No one claimed any of their stuff was their own. They gave it to each other. And it raises this question of ownership. Fundamentally, at root, whose are you? Who do you belong to? Are you your own? Is it your stuff? Is it your life? Or are you his? Whose are your possessions? Whose is your stuff? Whose is your heart? Who do we belong to? This is the foundation of generosity at every level, whether it's giving of our time, giving of our energy, giving of our money, giving of our heart. It's the concept of stewardship, which means that it was never ours in the first place. It's his, and we just pass it on. When you steward something, you're using it well, but it's not yours. It's on trust from someone else. Uh, we had to talk this through with my four-year-old just a couple of weeks ago because she wanted to take all of her dolls to heaven, and we kind of had to explain that when you die, you can't take anything with you. Um, it all stays. And the tragedy of this world is we so often spend so much of our time and our energy on stuff that's not going to last, and we miss the stuff that will last, which is each other. 
Uh, There's a prayer which says it beautifully. It says, all things come from you, and of your own do we give you. It's all his. How are we going to pass it on? It's this beautiful picture of generosity in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we get a really awkward story, which is the total opposite, isn't it? It's the opposite of unity. It's the opposite of generosity. Two people who are wanting to use this, use this to make a name for themselves, their own reputation. Uh, and frankly, it would be easier just to skip it, wouldn't it, and to have the nice story in chapter 4 and then move on to the next one. And I don't know if you ever have this temptation when you find something hard in the Bible. Because when we find something hard in the Bible, we're faced with a choice. Because this is the word of God. This is written from God to show us how to live. And Jesus, the Son of God himself, he lived his whole life submitted to the scriptures, to the Bible. He taught his disciples to obey it. He appealed to it as the final authority. He went to the cross because it was prophesied in this book. And if Jesus was God, and if he submitted to the scriptures and their authority, and if he taught his followers to do the same, then if we want to follow him, we've got to treat it the same way he did. If we really want to be followers of Jesus, we've got to share his attitude to Scripture. So when we come to an awkward passage like this, we can either reject Jesus' authority and say, no, that's not the kind of God I want to believe in. I'm not going to believe that. I know better than Jesus does. Or we can ask God to show us what we need to learn from his word, what he's trying to tell us with the shock of a passage like this, and ask him to conform us to the truth that's revealed in his word. So let's do that here as we think about Acts chapter 5. And the context is what Barnabas had just done in chapter 4, verse 36. He'd sold a field, he'd taken the money, and he'd gave it to the disciples. It's amazing generosity. Um, And the thing about Barnabas is everybody loved Barnabas. You can see it in his nickname. The name Barnabas, it's a nickname. It means son of encouraging. Sorry, son of encouragement. His, His nickname wasn't grumpy or dopey. His nickname was the encouraging one. You know Barnabas, he's the really encouraging one. What a great nickname to have. He'd he'd have been a good friend. When Paul and Mark fall out later in Acts, it's Barnabas who comes between them and tries to, like, fix it and help people get on together. He's the really smiley friend, the one who's always cheerful, always building people up. They seem too good to be true. And so I imagine everyone in the church was talking about how great Barnabas was. Did you hear what he did? The encouraging one. He sold his field. He gave it to the poor. What an amazing Christian. Um, Can you imagine? What a legend. And Ananias and Sapphira, we don't know exactly what their motive was. Perhaps they were jealous of Barnabas. Perhaps they wanted people to talk about them that way. Um, Perhaps they just wanted to look good. Perhaps they were looking for praise. Perhaps they were feeling pressure to keep up and they were playing the comparison game where they were living for what others thought and they thought we've got to keep up with Barnabas or everyone will think he's great. But whatever the reason is, they sell some property and they give some of the profit to the church, but they pretend they've given the whole thing. And it's so tempting, isn't it? Just to massage the numbers a little bit, just to tell that white lie, just to make it seem a bit better than it is, because what we're trying to do is curate people's opinion of us. It's what we do on social media all the time, trying to put a filter up to the world that's better than the reality, to make people think that we're better than we think we really are. And the tragedy of this story is they were doing a really good thing, weren't they? They were, they'd sold some of their possessions, they'd given the money to the poor. They were doing a really good thing. But that's not where their heart was. Their real agenda was to improve their image. And God, who looks at the heart, was not impressed. We get taken in by the social media profile. God sees what we're really like. And so this story is not really about money at all, but it's about our hearts. Because God sees everything. 
He sees all the things that nobody else knows, even your parents, your siblings, your husband or wife, the darkest parts of life that we don't show to anyone else. God sees the lot. We can't fool God. We can't fake it with him. And Peter says to Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And if there's one person we can't fool, it's God. Uh, and Peter, we see here, he's so concerned with the presence and the authority of the Holy Spirit living in the middle of the church that he sees this attempt to de deceive the community as an attempt to deceive the Holy Spirit. It's a lie told to the God who is present with his people in the church. Um, and Ananias falls down and dies. I, I, I don't think Peter was expecting that to happen. I know that would have been quite, I mean, quite a severe reaction. Um, and who knows in the natural exactly what it was. Maybe it was a heart attack, the final straw that Ananias has been living for people's opinion, and he's been trying to improve his image, and now he's been publicly found out, and it's just too much. Uh, maybe he's convicted by guilt, because he's been living for the wrong thing, and suddenly he realises what he's done, that he's been trying to lie to God, that he's not been caring about others, but it's all been selfish. Um, maybe he realises how far he's gone and the slope he's been sliding down. Maybe he's been lying to himself, but whatever the medical cause, he hears this revelation from Peter of what he's doing, and he falls down dead. Um, and the story evokes a couple of stories in the Old Testament. Johnny preached on a similar story from Joshua in the summer on Achan's sin. Um, and there's actually a couple of words that are the same words used here um, that, are, that are used in the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And so it might be that they're trying to deliberately remind us of the story of Achan. Because it's a, it's a very similar story. Achan keeps to himself private property that belonged to God. He stole from the Lord. Uh, and in both stories, you have this act of deceit, which kind of interrupts or gets in the way of this new thing that God's doing with his people. And in both stories, there's this divine judgment on the one who gets in the way of what God's doing with his people as a result. Uh, there's another similar story, not about money, um, but where someone is struck down dead in Numbers chapter 16. It's called Korah's Rebellion. And this man, Korah, he tries to push himself into the holy place in the middle of the camp and says, I deserve to be there just as much as Moses. Why does Moses get to go and have all the important roles? I should be there too. And he's struck down and dies um, because he's pushed himself towards the holy place. And what all of these stories have in common is this rejection of the arrogance and the self-promotion that rejects God's way and says, I know better, it should be about me, and that ignores the fact that God is a holy God. Uh, this passage is about a call to holiness. It says that God will not bless his people when we permit unconfessed sin. And here's why I believe this happened, as hard as it is to read, in verse 11. As a result, in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Uh, and the word fear there, it's, um, it's not like anxious, ter anxious terror, like, oh no, we're next, I can't trust God, I'm in real trouble. It's not that kind of fear. It's the fear that leads to that English phrase, the fear of the Lord. You could say awe and fear. It's a fear of God's holiness. Uh, it's what Isaiah has in Isaiah 6 when he comes into the temple and he sees God on the throne. He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. It's the holy fear that doesn't doubt that God is good but that realises how far sh short we fall of God's holiness and goodness. 
And the, the thing is that the enemy wanted to corrupt the church from the start. He always was against God's plan to rescue his people. He tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He did tempt Judas with greed and he succeeded and Judas betrayed Jesus. He tempts Peter with fear of what other people think when Peter betrays Jesus in the night before he dies. Here it's this deceit. In each case, it's a temptation that's ignoring God's holiness and power and is trying to get people to put what people think before God. And we're reminded here that God is a holy judge, that we cannot fool him, that he sees our very best and our very worst. And the great news of the gospel is that God sees us at our worst and he loves us anyway that each one of us, we enter into his presence as we did at the communion table a few minutes ago because Jesus' body was broken in our place. His blood was shed in our place. He took the punishment we deserve. God sees us at our worst and he loves us anyway. We are each one of us invited to the presence of the Lord. We're invited to know him, not because we deserve it. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us how holy God is, how little we deserve it. But just because he loves us that much and that Jesus died, in my place and yours, so that we could come in. And it's a reminder here that God is a holy God, of the price he had to pay to bring us home. And Luke's concerned with the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling the early church. He's saying they must not take their identity as God's holy people for granted. And so, my friends, we see that the church is the community that Jesus died to create. So a reminder in both our passages... Uh, On the cross, he tore down the barrier that separates us from each other. He made us one. And he tore down the barrier that separates us from God. Our sin, our brokenness, all the stuff we do wrong that separates us from God, Jesus dealt with once and for all on the cross. And that means that we who do not deserve his love, we're welcomed in, we're embraced by the Father. And Jesus took the punishment for us. And because we belong to Jesus, we then belong to each other because we're made one family as we come to him. And it means that whoever you are tonight, you belong here in this family. Whatever you've done, however bad it is, it's washed clean by Jesus' death in your place. But we're reminded that we can't, that we can't fool God. We can't blag it and stand in front of him and say, I deserve your love, I've done nothing wrong. Put our fake face forward. He sees through it. He sees us at our worst. And he loves us anyway. In Acts chapter 4, we see a community that is so transformed by the Spirit, they didn't even consider their possessions their own, and there were no needy people among them. In Acts chapter 5, we see the lengths that God will go to protect and safeguard his people and to keep the church holy as he is holy, a community transformed by the love and power of God. And the tragedy of consumerism, which is the air we breathe, we don't even notice, is that we end up living for material things that will not last. And we don't live for the God who is forever and for the people who will last for eternity. Uh, And we miss the clues that actually we have too much stuff. We live for the stuff that will perish and fade away. Jesus says you can live for God or for money, but you can't live for both. And here we see a church that loved God more than money and two people that didn't. And one of the ways that we wean ourselves off this, um, this greed and this living for the stuff that won't last is by giving. And we discovered as a ch- we've been discovering this year as a church that giving is a joyful thing, that when we give away, it's much more blessed to give than to receive. We felt that in our gift day in March where we gave sacrificially and we found the joy that comes of living freed from possessions, living for something greater. Uh, We find that as we shape by God's generosity and his sufficiency, we have more than enough. 
Uh, and so all our physical giving, all our giving of money or time or energy or whatever it is, it's just a response to what the Lord has done for us. He's made us one. He's died in our place so that we who cannot come close to a holy God are welcomed in Jesus' blood in our place. Um, and so I wonder tonight, what would it look like for you to be a conduit of God's love to others, the way that the community in Acts chapter 4 were? We can all choose to approach our community in one of two ways. We can do it the way that Ananias and Sapphira did, saying, I want people to think well of me. I want to curate my image. I want to do things so that I'm seen to do them. Basically, I want to make sure that people like me and I want to get from this community. Or we can approach community the way that Jesus did, laying down his life for each other, giving, coming to serve, not to be served. Which posture will we take this evening? When I was a student, I got church all wrong. I was, um, I was part of a great church, but in my second year, I, I stopped serving, I stopped giving financially, I kind of came to receive. And when I came wanting to receive from church, I didn't. And so I felt a bit flat, and I didn't get very much from the Sunday services, and I was coming to get stuff from the Sunday services. And it just went on this spiral down. I thought it was all a bit rubbish. Uh, and then the Lord just put his finger on my heart, and I realised how I'd been approaching church all wrong. I'd been approaching it a bit like Ananias and Sapphira. I'd wanted to get from it not to give. And actually, in the Christian story, we receive from Jesus. He's given us everything, his love, his grace. He sees our worst. He loves us anyway. And we come and we receive from him, and then we give to others. And it's actually as we give, as we serve, as we pour ourselves out for those around us with our time, with our money, with our energy, that we receive even more because we cannot outgive God. He is the giving God. Um, John Wesley said, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. That's the Christian life. Not to try and earn God's love, but as a reflection, as an overflow of the love that he gave for us on the cross. My friends, this is who we are. We are bought at a price. We are accepted in the beloved. We are welcomed home. We are part of the family of God. We belong to each other. We are welcomed in, not because we deserve it, but because the Holy One himself came and died in our place. Will we live out our identity? Will we live who we are? Will we repent of those places where we put ourselves first and give all that we are to live lives overflowing with God's generosity and love to others? Will we be in him who we already are? Would you stand with me as the band come back and let's pray together. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do that. I know how far short of that picture in Acts 4 my own heart is. And you might like to hold out your hands as if you're going to receive a gift as we ask God to give us the gift of his love that is so pure and self-giving and generous to change our hearts and make us like that for others. So come Holy Spirit, we pray. Thank you, Lord, that we do not deserve your love, but you love us anyway. You are the holy God. We cannot fool you. You are the judge of the earth. And yet when we come into your presence, you don't condemn us, but you welcome us in in your son. You clothe us in Jesus. You wrap your arms around us. You forgive us our sin. Lord, we're so sorry for the times that we fall short and live for our own gain, live selfishly rather than for others. We are sorry. Please, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, 
Would you pour out your love into our hearts? Would you change our hearts so that we overflow in love for others? So that all that our life is is a reflection of your love for our family, for our friends, for our church community, for all that we meet. Come Holy Spirit, we pray, and pour out your love in our hearts as we wait on you.